0: monsters fear of the darkness and what lurks within it unseen stalking our earliest ancestors huddled around their fires listening for every snap of twig or rustle of leaf was it the wind or the sound of falling leaves or was it something bigger something hungry 40,000 years ago we discovered how to create images with paint We used ochre for red, sometimes orange or yellow, depending on the tone of the mineral deposits. We used chalk for white, and the ash from the remnants of burned animal fats for black. Do you know what the first things our species decided to paint on cave walls were? The first things that emerged from our imagination because we just couldn't hold them inside any longer So we manifested them as images in caves all over the world. Animals, often predators, the beasts that stalked the world. The earliest images are found in Indonesia, 40,000 years old, although there are paintings in Australia that date to around that same time, and some posit even earlier. The study of cave art is rife, with debate, controversy, and conflicting interpretations. But most agree these places were some of the first to put paint to rock. Then there are paintings in Spain from 35,000 years ago. Neanderthals painted there too, by the way, and were living alongside of us. France has some of the best preserved and most elaborate cave art in the world. Chauvet Cave, which is dated at 30 to 33,000 years ago, has 420 depictions of animals drawn over a span of thousands of years and many generations. Cave lions, cave bears, woolly rhinos, mammoths, reindeer, bison, and horses. These were some of the first things to capture our imaginations, so much so that all over the world, cross-culturally, they inspired us so much that we invented a way to represent them in the abstract. We invented art. As we evolved, our ideas about what monsters are have evolved with us. On this bonus Halloween season episode, we are going to explore the first known monsters in history, see how they supercharged our fears, changed our behavior, spurred our imaginations, and we'll see how we still fear them, and maybe how we need them. So. What were the first things to come out of the darkness? Let's find out. I'm your host, Kristen Robine Terpstra, and this is The History Cache. Let's have a look inside. The word monster comes from the Latin word monstrum, which means divine omen, especially one denoting misfortune. It can also mean portent sign, abnormal shape, or monstrosity. The origin is Latin, but the fear associated with monstrum is timeless. It's fitting that the word monster would be the same as the word for omen, because monsters represent the unknown, and we've always been scared of that, haven't we? Of what's out there in the darkness, both outwardly and internally. When we think of monsters now, we tend to think of fantastical beasts that exist only in stories, myth, or on our TV screens. Sometimes we think of people as monsters, people so twisted in deed and ideology that we separate them from ourselves, casting them outside of the normal human condition because we are so uncomfortable at just how dark our species can get. History's most destructive warlords and dictators easily fit into this category. Our definition of what a monster can be has evolved, like words tend to do. But in the beginning, when all we knew was the world we saw around us, before the word monstrum was ever spoken, there were real, monstrous threats that stalked us. And that fear still lives in our minds. Three million years ago, a three-year-old boy in South Africa a member of the Australopithecus africanus species, was carried away by a huge predatory bird. We know this because we found his skull in the nest of this prehistoric flying monster. There were two perfect talon holes punched into his eye sockets. This bird swooped down, picked this child up by squeezing its claws into his eyes, then carried him off and ate him. Birds weren't the only monsters we dealt with. Giant predatory hyenas existed alongside our early ancestors. And much more recently, our Ice Age ancestors were dealing with giant cave bears that could weigh 2,200 pounds, or 1,000 kilos, and roamed from England, possibly all the way to North Africa until around 24,000 years ago. Cave lions that were at least 10% larger than modern African lions died out about 12,400 years ago. Both these creatures are represented in some of the world's oldest cave art. The cave in Chauvet, France, depicts 16 lions hunting a herd of prehistoric bison. A sight familiar to our ancestors. Smilodon, a large predatory cat, which is what most people are actually thinking of when they envision the saber-toothed tiger, stalked throughout the Americas as recently as 10,000 years ago. Hundreds of thousands of their bones have been found in the La Brea Tar Pits in California. And if you're ever in LA, go to the La Brea Tar Pits. It's like looking into a time machine. Well, a murky one. In Australia, early humans contended with giant predatory kangaroos. Can you imagine that? Even today, kangaroos can be pretty punchy. As we evolved, we learned how to protect ourselves. It was our brains and not our brawn that kept us alive. We learned to harness fire. Our weapons became more specialized. Our dwellings became more fortified and we eventually figured out how to grow our own food, making it less and less necessary for us to confront the unknown. But the monsters stayed with us, and when we left the wilderness, we took them with us. We incorporated them into our myths, our religions. Demons, dragons, giants, leviathan, jinn, genies. You can find some of these in the Torah, the New Testament, and the Quran, And they are some of the oldest references we have to monsters that were not flesh and blood entities stalking our hunting grounds. The Azidahaka of Zoroastrianism is said to be a being with six eyes, three mouths, and three heads that bleeds snakes, rats, and insects when wounded. And it's prophesized that one day he'll eat all of the world's livestock and one third of humanity. In ancient Egypt, if one's heart was found to be heavier than a feather at death, they were fed to Amit, a chimera with the head of a crocodile, the forelimbs of a lion, and the hind limbs of a hippopotamus. Namazu, a monstrous catfish that was said to live underneath Japan, was believed to be the cause of earthquakes. It's only extremely recently that we've colored in the map of the world. For most of history, we had no idea what was on the other side of the mountain, let alone what was over the ocean or underneath it. As we ventured out into the water, tales of sea monsters abounded. The Kraken, first written of in 1180 CE by King Sverre of Norway, is said to be the biggest monster ever imagined by humankind. In Nordic folklore, it was believed this monster hunted the seas from Norway all the way to Greenland. It would stalk sailors, wrapping its tentacles around their ships and dragging them down into the bottom of the ocean. Sometimes it was said to swim in powerful circles around a ship, creating a whirlpool of such force that the ship would sink down to the bottom of the sea like a sliver of soap in a bathtub. We now know these accounts were probably inspired by sightings of giant squids, which would have been a real terrifying sight for early seafarers. Rumors about monsters of land, sky, and sea grew as we ventured further and further out, over greater and greater distances. The legends that developed were repeated and exaggerated. For most of history, most people could not read or write, and relied on oral retellings from others to explain what was out there. And if you've ever played a game of telephone, you know how easy it is for word of mouth to stray from what was originally told. This made for a lot of misinformation. Have you ever heard a friend exaggerate a story when you heard them retelling it? With how great we are at exaggeration, believing in our own false memories, how poor our eyesight can be in the dark, how bad we are at judging sizes and distances, it's easy to see how a giant squid can become a kraken over time. And most people throughout time couldn't write down anything they had seen. In 1820, only 14% of the world's population could read. That's not that long ago. In 1960, only 42% of the world could read. That's less than half. When space programs began popping up all over the world, most of us still could not read. Today, 86.3% of women worldwide and 90% of men worldwide are literate, but there's still a big gender gap. And there are still developing countries in which most adults still cannot read. In Niger, only 19% of males and 11% of females can read and write. Literacy is a privilege that most people have never had. And kids, I know you might not like school, but the fact that you get to learn how to read and write is huge. Almost everyone who has ever lived never got that chance. And as the map of the world grew, and we began to explore further and further into the unknown, we expected to find monsters. In the first century CE, Pliny the Elder wrote down some of these stories and some of the first literary references to monsters outside of our religious dogmas. He wrote of strange bands of people in India and Ethiopia, including the Astomi, who were said to be mouthless, hairy creatures, who didn't have to eat or drink. He wrote of people with dog heads and one-legged people who could hop at incredible speeds and use their huge feet as umbrellas to protect themselves from the sun. We know now that these accounts were apocryphal, and maybe even a way to dehumanize the people of foreign lands. But if you're an illiterate fig farmer that has never had the chance to travel, learned to read or write, and relied on the oral information of others to give you the news, then why wouldn't you believe this stuff? Your religion had things like gorgons and minotaurs, and no one knew what was at the edge of the world. Anything could have been out there. This doesn't mean that our ancestors were stupid or naive. It just means that they had little to no access to information. Now we can just Google whatever we want to know about, and all the collective information we've amassed as a species appears right in front of us on our phone, wherever we are. And that's incredible. But news was slow back in Pliny's day, and the stories of the distant monsters he wrote down remained influential throughout the Middle Ages in Europe, and became part of folklore. Every culture in the world has folklore that contains strange creatures, many that are anthropomorphous or human-animal hybrids. And it's no surprise that we would combine our first monsters, those giant predators we admired and feared so much, with our own selves and the supernatural. As time went on, people started writing down some of their folklore, even illustrating pictures in ancient manuscripts as our imaginations went from cave wall parchment. Over a thousand years ago, in 10th century England, depictions of variations of Pliny's creatures were illustrated in a text called The Marvels of the East. In 1260 CE, a detailed map of the known world was drawn with depictions of monstrous races all along the eastern edge. This was probably part fear of the unknown and part xenophobia, It was much easier to vilify people who were different than you if they were monsters. But it wasn't just beasts and strange peoples of other lands that scared us. We believed that there were monsters among us too. You would have a hard time finding a culture that at some point wasn't afraid of witches or sorcerers or shamanism or people harnessing the supernatural in some way. In Europe, between 1500 and 1660 CE, upwards of 80,000 people, mostly women, were tortured and put to death for witchcraft, usually by hanging or by fire. Saudi Arabia, to this day, has a witchcraft unit in its police force. In 2011, according to a report from CNN, a woman there was beheaded for witchcraft. In my series on the Shuar tribe of the Amazon, I detailed anthropologist Michael J. Harner's account of what happened during a head raid when warring bands of people would attack, decapitate, and shrink the heads of their enemies. In nearly all of these cases, the people killed had been accused of witchcraft. This practice continued at least through the 1960s. As time has gone on, monsters have changed to look more like us. Frankenstein was a monster made out of the dead pieces of other men. Zombies, which are hugely popular right now, are usually depicted as the brain-hungry living dead versions of ourselves. Vampires have stalked our imagination for centuries, and the idea of immortality we associate with them has led to huge upticks in our interest of them. But before we turn them into sparkling pre-teen fiction heartthrobs, The fear of vampires as creatures that rose from the dead was considered a real threat, and some of us went to great lengths to protect ourselves. In Bulgaria, in 2012, archaeologists found two medieval skeletons that had been pierced through the chest with iron rods. According to the BBC, this burial practice was common and practiced from the medieval period all the way through the early 20th century. Practitioners believe that stabbing the hearts of the dead when they were buried would prevent them from rising to suck the blood of the living. There are around 100 known vampire burials like this, and vampire fear is still prevalent in places today. According to a New York Times article in 2002, rumors that the government of Malawi was colluding with vampires to collect human blood in exchange for food terrified villagers. A suspected vampire helper was stoned and beaten to death. Three priests were attacked and a foreign aid encampment identified as vampire headquarters was destroyed. In the 1980s, satanic panic was huge in the US. People believed that satanic cults were everywhere, even causing some parents to believe that the game Dungeons and Dragons was really a way for satanic cults to get to their kids. Having actually played Dungeons & Dragons myself, and thoroughly enjoyed the imaginative campaigns that have nothing to do with satanic cults, this particular media-induced freakout seems especially ridiculous. Our fear of monsters in all their forms has manifested throughout history, and remains to manifest today, Though for the most part, we've let go of many of our monsters, but we still want to believe in them, I think. We even cherish them, or the possibility of them. For example, it's illegal in Skamania County, Washington, to kill a Bigfoot, just in case. We don't turn our fears into monsters so much anymore, at least not on the scale we used to, not Kraken-sized. Now we're afraid of things like identity theft, car accidents, bad economy, cyber terrorism, depression, sedentary lifestyles, cholesterol, or what social media does to our brains. Although our biggest fear is the same thing it's always been, death. But we still crave those monsters from the dark. Horror movies, shows like Supernatural or The Walking Dead are hugely popular. We love the unknown and the possibilities they hold. But why? Legendary psychologist Carl Jung argued that we need monsters because they represent the shadow sides of our own selves. They confront us, causing us to become conscious of the dark aspects of our own personalities, which he argued is an essential component for real self-knowledge. Maybe we need monsters because they represent what we don't know, We have a very human need to satisfy our curiosity. Monsters and the ominous unknown always gave us something to explore. If all the monsters are gone, then what's left to conquer? Well, death. And nothing makes us more uncomfortable than that, does it? And historically, monsters have helped us explain a confusing world. A monster is something physical, sometimes supernatural but always something we can point our fingers at. We used witches to explain plagues and crop failures, angry gods to explain earthquakes and volcanic eruptions. They helped us make sense of everything. And when we're preoccupied with monsters, we can procrastinate contemplating our own mortality by being afraid of them instead. They're a buffer between us and the possibility of an eternal void that we will do anything to avoid. And if there are things out there like ghosts, demons, or anthropomorphic gods that exist in supernatural realms, then maybe that means there's something else waiting for us after we die. If they exist, then maybe there's no such thing as total oblivion. Their existence gives our existence a chance. So monsters give us wonder and closure. They help us examine ourselves and help satisfy our need to explain and search out the unknown. And maybe that's why we love our monsters. Maybe we've always loved them. Or maybe I've just had too many popsicles today and this is just all the sugar talking. Researching the first monsters was difficult and abstract because monsters existed well before we knew how to write about them. There's not much outside of religious and spiritual ideology that we know of until Pliny wrote 2,000 years ago. Folklore all over the world contains stories of monsters, and some of these weren't represented until much later in historical records. And by then, they had changed. Since most of the world for most of history was illiterate, we just don't have as thorough a record as we would like to. But we do have a fossil record that is extremely detailed, and we know just how many beasts stalked through the world of our ancient ancestors. Cave bears and lions, giant hyenas and kangaroos with teeth like wolves. These first monsters, these prehistoric beasts, were flesh and blood and were a real threat. And in this way, the first monsters were real, and they carried away our children into their nests and kept us on the edge as we gathered together around the fire at night. You know, I began this episode by talking about the first images our ancestors painted on the walls and ceilings of caves, and among them were the images of the first beasts, the first real monsters. But there was one more thing we painted on those walls, and it's something we've seen everywhere. Cultures who never knew of one another all depicted the same thing, handprints. Our ancestors everywhere pressed their hands against the rock and blew a spray of ochre pigment all around, leaving the outline of a hand. Some were missing fingers or were crooked from breaks that never healed properly, showing the brutality of prehistoric life. You should Google it. It's some of the most evocative art we've ever made. And it's chilling to see it, all these tens of thousands of years later. Some of these handprints were made by children. Both women and men left their handprints pressed against cave walls. And why? We don't know. That's the short answer. The most experienced and brightest anthropological minds don't really know, not for sure. All we can do is give our best, most thoughtful interpretations of why. And it makes you wonder, why would I have done that? Why would you have left the imprint of your hand on a cave 40,000 years ago, and then bothered to painstakingly depict images of the biggest animals out there when you could have been foraging for food instead? Why would you want to represent the monsters? Maybe it's their way of telling us something over lengths of time so vast and ways of living so disparate that the spoken word just couldn't do what an image could. Maybe they're telling us we were here, and so were they. That does it for another bonus Halloween history bite. I hope you enjoyed hearing about the first monsters that stalked our world and our imaginations. Let me know your thoughts. Tell me what your favorite monster is. You can get a hold of me at historycashpodcast at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram. If you'd like to donate to the show, you can do that at patreon.com slash historycashpodcast. A dollar a month comes out to 50 cents a show, not counting the bonus episodes. So if you like it, Dig through those couch cushions and throw your favorite history nerd some change. Or for free, you can follow and rate the show on iTunes or wherever you listen to help more people find the show. And thank you so much for listening and giving me and this show a chance. I hope hearing about the world's first monsters spooked you in all the best kinds of ways. Next week, you'll get yet another bonus episode because, well, I love October. And after that, I hope to have the final chapter of the Shackleton series for you. I promised y'all an episode every week this month before I realized there were five Wednesdays in October this year, so Shackleton has had to take a back seat to the spooky stuff, but he's on his way. I've been your host, Kristen Robine Terpstra, and until we meet again, dear wandering star of time and monster myth, go make some history.